Welcome to episode 61 of No Rares Required, a weekly podcast where I go over the commons and uncommons that make up the majority of the cards that you will see during a draft. And every week I discuss a strategy to a specific color pair or archetype, and this week Orsov or White Black won the vote. And uh, I think the archetype's theme should be called Orsov Removal. Um, but it's uh, the theme on uh, MTGA is actually sacrifice, and it was a little bit of a whiff. So um, at the time of this recording, it has a 52.7% win rate, which is the second worst archetype on 17 lands. Rakdos is taking a uh, last place trophy. And um, I do think that this can be used to our advantage, though, because if we do avoid the traps that are causing the archetype to be a bottom performer, um, I and members of my Discord community have had great success with the archetype. So uh, I think you'll want to focus on the flyers in white. Rem um, sorry, <clears throat> the flyers in white removal in white and in black. And then anything that helps the the small game, like the cards that give you like the double advantage, so fanatical offering, um, another chance, the skullcap snail, anything that can kind of uh, trade, you know, give give you that card advantage. I think is really where the Orsov space shines. And then you'll look to you'll want to trade one for one with your opponent's resources. And so cards like Deathcap Marionette work pretty well, although I think there is a little bit less of a benefit off of the self-mill than in the Golgari space. And as always with Black, you're going to want to keep your eyes out for Deep Cavern Bat and Chupacabra Echo. And I do think you'll want to favor Black just slightly, a little bit more than White. Um, it really depends on how many flyers you're going to see, right? Like... Your white is primarily made up for the flyers, and um, but if you can be majority black, then that's better because of the double pips. And um, remember to hit like and subscribe for near daily Magic the Gathering content. Uh, this has been a wonderful year, <clears throat> so I just wanted to wish you all a happy holiday and a happy new year. And uh, remember to come visit YouTube if you want to place a vote for next week's archetype. Uh, we've got three left before the next set. So with that, let's dive into the cards individually, and we've got a fair amount to go through uh, this week. So, uh, and also when when I think you should be taking them during a draft. <clears throat> okay, so first I like to calculate the total wins created, and uh, if this is your first time kind of seeing my technique, what I do is I I take the average of the games played win rate and the games in hand win rate on uh, seventeen lands, which is a site that tracks data of Magic the Gathering users. And then I subtract the average win rate of all of the users in that archetype specifically and multiply it by the numbers of games played. And what this does is it allows me to sift through the data and figure out what are the cards that are uh, most impactful to the archetype. And uh, so these are the ones that are being played the most, not just impacting it the most positively, if that makes sense. So uh, top of the list, we've got Alltech Cloud Guard, which is the 3-2 flyer that spawns a 1-1. Deep Cavern Bat, which is the 1-1 lifelink that looks at your opponent's hand and you get to take something. Uh, Miner's Guidewing is the 1-1 that explores when it dies with flying for one. Hiding Blade um, is the Edict as an artifact that flips into the, the artifact that drains your opponent for one damage. Fanatical Offering is the one where you sacrifice and create a map token and draw. Uh, Clay-Fired Bricks 
lets you look for planes and then it switches into uh, plus one plus one for your board and spawns two one one gnomes Skullcap snail makes your opponent discard a card rune lurker bat is the one one lifelink in white uh spring loaded saw blades is the deal five that flips into the vehicle join the dead is minus five minus five or minus ten minus ten if you've descended uh with the double pip black removal at common Tinker's Tote is three cards in one. It uh, gives you an artifact that you can sacrifice to gain three life and two one ones. Another chance, which um, does some self mill and then brings two creature cards back from your graveyard to your hand. Aklazot's Deepest Betrayal, which is the busted black mythic that is a uh, flying lifelink creature that uh, becomes a land and then comes back if you or your opponent is hellbent. Sanguine Evangelist, which is the 2-1 that um, spawns a 1-1 bat when it comes in and then when it dies as well with Battle Cry. And then Preacher of the Schism, which is the 2-4 Death Touch that either draws you a card and you lose a life or creates a 1-1 uh, lifelink vampire, I believe. So then we can do the same thing with the total wins destroyed. And these are the ones that are like the trap cards. These are the reason. This is the reason right here that... The archetype has not been doing well, so I, I do believe that if you if you avoid these cards, um, one of the things that's nice is that like because a lot of people will use 17 lands data and they'll look at like what archetypes are not doing very well, they'll avoid those archetypes, right? And I I think that if you if you go into those archetypes specifically with the knowledge of what is making those archetypes not do well, you can you can exploit a very underdrafted space. And uh, so I think this is what you should be trying to do if you do find yourself in a draft where nobody's appreciating the black cards at the table. So <clears throat> top of the list is Brood Rage Mycoid, which is the 4-3 for 4 that, or yeah, I think it's a 4-3 for 4 that spawns a 1-1 if you descended. Acolyte of Aklazots, which is the 1-4 that can tap to sacrifice a creature. Uh, Deep Goblin Skull Taker, which is the 2-2 Menace that gets plus 1, plus 1 a, a counter if you've descended. And uh, <clears throat> Vito's Inquisitor, which is the one that you can sacrifice to put a plus one plus one counter onto Vito's Inquisitor. And th this is similar to Rakdos. Like, this is, a, this is a card that looked like it was specifically designed for this space. And so the fact that it's not doing well is kind of what I mean by, like, the, the sacrifice theme that the design team had made ended up not working quite as well. So I think this is one of the cards that's really affecting the win rate of, of the archetype. Uh, Grasping Shadows is the enchantment that if you attack alone, you get Death Touch and Lifelink, and then it switches into a land that can uh, let you play things from your graveyard, I think, if I remember. Um, Kaparakti Sunborn is the 4-4, the, the Boros card, the Boros Uncommon, that allows you to discover, so it's a splash. Glorifier of Suffering, which is another one that, like, with, same as Inquisitor, <clears throat> is doing the sacrifice thing specifically. So it's a 3-2 that if you sacrifice something, you get to put two plus one plus one counters on your board. And uh, Glorifier of Suffering is, I thought it looked good. Like if you're sacrificing a map token to put a, you know, two plus one plus one counters, uh, that should be good, right? Theoretically. Um, but nothing supports that it actually does well. And every time that my opponent plays it, it hasn't, it hasn't been impressive uh, even when you have like a whole bunch of white flyers, um, I think the glorifier of suffering is best in that situation, but still underwhelming. And that's how important rectangles are in the set. So the theme that is sacrificing those rectangles has to be very careful about the price that they're paying. Uh, Abuelo's Awakening is the rare white that lets you go and find um, something from your graveyard and put it into play. Um, 
And then Pakal Thousandth Moon is the uh, Boros rare that spawns gnomes and, and grows in size. Hunter's Blowgun, which is the one that gives you reach or death touch, uh, colorless equipment with an equip cost of two. Autoclan Landmark, which is the uh, scry, land, uh, scry artifact that turns into a 1-4 flyer that can give other things flyer. Chimil the Inner Sun, which is the colorless uh, mythic, I believe, that uh, discovers five at the end of your turn. Canonized in Blood, which uh, is so bad I can't even remember what it does. <laughs> uh, not an impressive en black enchantment, if I believe, uh, if I remember. Uh, Adaptive Gem Guard, which is the 3-3 Hill Giant in white that can tap two artifacts or creatures to put a plus one plus one counter on it. Abuelo Ancestral Echo, which is the um, Azorius or blue-white that can blink things, and then a Braid, which is the common red removal or destroy artifact. So um, looking over this list, you can kind of, yeah, take away a couple of things. The archetype is not splashing particularly well. Um, the fact that Chimil, the Inner Sun, um, is not doing particularly well in this archetype kind of points to you want the game to be over sooner rather than later. Um, Chimil does better the longer the game goes, the more that it can continue to discover. Um, I also don't think you're going to have um, as many great threats to hit uh, with Chimil is another thing is that like what five drops are you trying to hit and black the black white space doesn't have as much of that it has more, more of those like you know if you if you play Chimil and you flip over a skull cap snail when your opponent has no cards in hand it's kind of underwhelming right so uh, you've got a lot of little two drops in this archetype that don't work particularly well with Chimil and um, yeah and you should avoid the <laughs> the theme of actually trying to sacrifice your artifacts. So uh, after doing that, I like to get a little bit deeper, and um, what I do is I take those wins created and I divide them by the number of times that the card was picked and uh, graph it against the average taken at, or ATA, and fit the data with a logarithmic regression. And then I calculate the distance of the card to the fitted line, which thanks to Carl, aka 2DuckCubed, we'll call value over replacement. And uh, this allows me to see which are the top cards that to take at different time points within a draft. And uh, the top of the list, we've got Acolyte or Acolyzot's Deepest Betrayal, and which is the bat god, you know, the four-four flying lifelink for five. Um, that whenever it attacks, each opponent discards a card. For each opponent who can't, you draw a card. Whenever an opponent discards a land, you create a one-one back token, and then it comes uh, to switches into the Temple of the Dead if it dies. And you end up with a uh, being able to transform the Temple of the Dead into the Bat God if a player has one or fewer cards in hand and only as a sorcery. So the fact that it makes your opponent discard and, and the fact that it's just later in the game, you the chances of being able to reanimate this is very easy, right? And uh, this is a really good reason to head into the black space if you open up this. Uh, the other reason to be Orsov specifically is Vito, Fanatic of Aklazots doesn't perform very well in other archetypes. It's not a, it's not a set where splashing is particularly easy to do. Um, so Vito is kind of an Orsov superstar. You get a 4-4 flyer for four that whenever you sacrifice a permanent, you gain two life. If you sacrifice another one, you gain your opponent loses two life. And if you're if you're able to accomplish three sacrifices in one turn, then you get a 4-3 uh, vampire demon creature with flying. 
So uh, this is definitely one of those cards that like you can build around if you open it up and pack one, pick one, and you want to just focus on like this. This is one of the only reasons to lean heavily into the archetypes theme of like pick up everything with sacrifice. Um, if you go back and you look at my draft skeleton at the beginning of the video, I did choose Vito Fanatic of Aklazots, but I did not lean heavily into it. I do not believe that you need to. Um, a 4-4 flyer for four is perfectly fine. And the fact that it gains you additional life whenever you're sacrificing things off of fanatical offering or sacrificing your tinkering totes and things like that. Like, um, I don't think you need to hit the three to be able to get the four three. And I think that you can hurt yourself if you go too far down that road. So uh, you, the choice is yours, though, right? <laughs> uh, Preacher of the Schism has been a top performing black con uh, black rare that we've talked about a fair amount. Uh, two four death touch that either makes a one one vampire with lifelink or draws you a card and you lose a life, depending on what your opponent's life total is. And if you're tied, it does both. The uh, Sanguine Evangelist, uh, the 2 1 with Battle Cry. When it enters the battlefield or dies, create a 1 1 black bat creature token with flying. And um, especially with the attacking your opponent's resources and trading one for one, you can. Sanguine Evangelist works well with the kind of go wide. And um, I do think that because of the discover mechanic in red, we actually see kind of a switch. So Rakdos is usually the place of removal. And Orsov is usually more of the place of the go wide, and uh, or at least white is usually the more go wide color. And it's it's switched around the set because of the discover mechanic being in red. And so I think Rakdos is a little bit more of the small game go wide, whereas the um, Orsov is more of like the just really removal heavy archetype. And we've got the uh, unstable Glyph Bridge and the Sandswirl Wander Glyph. Uh, the wrath of the set that uh, gives you a creature as well. Um, by this point in the in in the set, yeah, I think you guys have all experienced <laughs> being glyph bridged and glyph bridging your opponent. It's a very powerful card. Uh, when you cast it, each player chooses a creature with power two or less, and then you destroy all of the creatures except the ones chosen that way. And then it switches into a five three flyer that your opponent either can play spells or attack you. They can't do both. We've got the uh, Starving Revenant, which is a 4-4 four, for four, 4 when it enters the battlefield, Surveil 2. And then uh, for each card that you put into, uh, keep on the top of your library, uh, you then draw and then lose 3 life. So it's Surveil 2, but like you can pay to get those cards into your hand. And then you've also got Descend 8. And um, whenever you draw a card, if there are 8 or more permanent cards in your graveyard, target opponent loses 1 life and you gain 1 life. And uh, so this one, this one works particularly well in the kind of um, attrition deck. And, you know, uh, you can go a very controlling way with Orsov, uh, which is why I was a little bit surprised to see Chamil, the Inner Sun, not working particularly well. But like I said, it kind of makes sense with the uh, cheap threats that you're running. Um, Starving Revenant, though, if you do have a long game and you get to that Descend 8, uh, kind of acts as a, a miniature shieldred. And then we've got the Resplendent Angel, which is a 3-3 flyer. At the beginning of each instep, if you gained five or more life this turn, create a 4-4 white angel creature token with flying and vigilance. And especially with Tinkers, Totes, and Vito, you, I think, are more likely to be able to actually cheese out the five life before being able to hit the uh, the self-pump with the three triple, triple pip of white. 
that gives plus two plus two in lifelink. So if you have Vito in play and you sacrifice a totes, you gain the five life, right? So you don't need to do the six. So there, there's a root there. And there's uh, same thing with the Echo of Dusk. E Echo of Dusk is um, a common that we'll cover later that can get lifelink in this archetype. And um, because of there, there's very limited amounts of life gain in this set. Um, Orsov, I think, is the space where Resplendent Angel does the best. And then uh, <clears throat> these are all, you know, who cares what rares you... Uh, <laughs> uh, the rare stuff is less important because you're going to pick the rares that you open, right? It's more about, like, if you open up a rare, knowing which archetype to try to take that rare into, but not to force it if you're... Uh, you know, it's definitely an art form in draft, how to navigate a draft. Um, this spot, I think, is more useful for navigation. Um, this is the, like, picks 2.5 through 5 are what what uncommons um, are you looking to open that should lead you into that archetype? And uh, top of the list here, we've got Deep Cavern Bat, the 1-1 Flying Lifelink that attacks your opponent's hands so that they have to use interaction. I've talked about this one a lot. Um, it, you know, this is a fantastic card and has been seeing play in Constructed. Chupacabra Echo, which is a 3-2 that as long as you've, like, fathomly descended, you, you get minus X, minus X to one of your opponent's creatures, where X is the number of permanents in your graveyard. So this is kind of one of those payoffs to having the uh, Death Cap Marionettes that, um, there, there's not a whole lot of descend payoffs in this space, but Chupacabra Echo is one of them. And then the Ultec Cloud Guard, which is the 3-2 flyer that spawns a 1-1, is the top performer of the uh, the total wins created. Uh, this is one of those cards that is a common, and uh, but you can take it like it is an uncommon. And then Clay Fired Bricks, uh, the Anthem, you, you get to gain two life and, you know, um, search your library for a Plains card. And then on seven, you get to flip over two one one colorless gnome artifact creature tokens and give everything plus one plus one. So the more that you have flyers, the more that you're going to be able to gum up the board with those one ones and chump block while your flyers all get plus one plus one and push damage. So I have a Ruin, Ruin Lurker Bat is another uncommon to look for. It's a 1-1 Flying Lifelink that if you've descended, you get to scry one. Uh, Spring-Loaded Sawblades, which is removal and a, a threat all in one. So you get a flash artifact that deals 5 damage to target tapped creature, and then it can craft with an artifact for 3 and a white into a 5-5 five, five vehicle that has crew one, or you can crew it with uh, untapped artifacts. You can turn it into an artifact creature if you tap two untapped artifacts. And then lastly, we've got Join the Dead. And um, Join the Dead is one of those that doesn't usually make the value of a replacement list. If you go back and you look at like Rakdos and Golgari and um, uh, Demir, Join the Dead, <clears throat> the archetype really needs to care about, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, really needs to care about having removal. And Orsov is in that space. You want as much as much removal as you can get. I try to at least, you know, hit the magic number eight, uh, which gives you the, 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 you know, 80% chance that you'll have two pieces of removal by turn five um, to deal with your opponent's threats. So join the dead made the list. And uh, despite it being something that you have to take very early. And uh, now we get into kind of the the meat of the draft where you've you've opened up your rare, you've picked up your uncommons, and now you're kind of like, okay, I need what what are the tools that are, are left over that go a little bit later in picks five and eight. These are your um, underappreciated uncommons and the commons that you should be looking for. And the top of the list is Tithing Blade, which is 
great for pairing with snails. Um, if you're playing a snail and you're attacking your opponent's hand, they're less likely to have multiple things on the board, and then the edict works really well at sniping what your opponent plays. Now, it's a little bit matchup dependent because if your opponent is playing stuff that creates multiple rectangles, then um, Tithing Blade, you know, would prefer to kill the big dino that's the lone dino on the board than just snipe a 1 1 token. Uh, but then you can flip it into Consuming Sepulcher, which gives you some late game inevitability if you are in a really high removal, high control space. Um, like I, yeah, I mentioned, Skullcap Snail, the one one that makes your opponent discard, pairs particularly nicely with that. And I look for those in the draft if I have, you know, um, reason to be in black. And then the uh, Synapse Necromage is one that I think is particularly nice with the um, Orsov strategy specifically. Um, not only does it give you additional stuff to sacrifice if you did decide to choose to go that route, but I think more importantly, the um, the 3-1 the works nicely on defense, right? It trades into your opponent's 1-1, one, one, so it doesn't attack particularly well, but it does trade with the 3-3, three, three, and then it gives you 1-1s one, that you can use later for your shenanigans. And then we've got a Miner's Guidewing, which is a 1-1 one, one Flying Vigilance. When it dies, target creature you control explores. And uh, this is going to be a bit of a longer episode. I'll just <laughs> get out there and say that now. I try to keep mine under 30 minutes, and I think this one's going to go a little bit long. Um, but there is something that I, I've learned something specifically this set. And what I learned this set is Miner's Guidewing is a much better pick five than it is a pick one. And um, so a lot of people will look at like, well, what's what's the best card in the pack, right? And I think that uh, some of the older drafters tend to look at the rares and the uncommons and then the commons in that order. And I, I learned kind of why that is. So even if you, if you have like four Miner's Guidewings in your deck, it's not necessarily going to um, give you the chutzpah that you need to, to get the trophy. It's going to be good. Don't get me wrong, right? Um, like in a, you can certainly trophy with a deck with four Miner's Guidewings in it. Um, but you're more likely to end up in a space that's being cut if you pack one, pick one, a guide wing, and um, you, you're signaling options that, like, this, the signals that you were sending uh, when you take a common are not as strong as the signals that you're sending when you take a rare and an uncommon. So um, what I found out is that you can end up in a space where you are um, prioritizing these cards, these top performing commons, and then you can kind of wind up in a space where you're competing against multiple drafters at the table and you end up with a very average or even below average deck. And um, so something just to keep in, in, in mind is that like Miner's Guidewing is a very good common. It is one of the best commons in the set. Um, but it is better to be taking Miner's Guidewing at pick five and is a great signal, right, if you still see these in pick five, that the white space is open enough to do your strategy. All right, off my, <coughs> off my soapbox. On to the other one. So Vis Visage of the Dread. I uh, learned this set as well that I was mispronouncing um, Visage, Visage. Uh, Visage of Dread is a uh, one that I, I like to look at when I'm doing the uh, Rakdos or the Orsov space. So if I do not care about Descended, um, then the, the Visage of Dread is an interesting card to play because it attacks your opponent's hand um, as long as you're playing it early. If you're playing it later, it's less likely to hit. Um, and then you can craft with two creatures. And if you care about the stuff in your graveyard, if you're doing like the another chance and like the, you know, the descend space of Demir and of Golgari, 
Crafting with two creatures is a big cost because it's going to negatively affect your descend space. But this archetype, Chupacabra Echo, is the only card that cares about the descend space. So it's a pretty good place to do the dread Osseosaur. And if you are doing the kind of go small, attack your opponent's hand and resources and everything, the Menace works particularly well the more snails and such that you have. And then Quicksand Whirlpool is um, removal. You want removal. You want all of the removal. And Quicksand Whirlpool is one that you can take advantage of going late. Um, the six cost kind of you know pushes people away from it unless you are really in a, a controlling space. And the Quicksand Whirlpool, it, it, it exiles a target creature for six or it costs three less if the creature is tapped. And then Market Gnome, <laughs> good old Market Gnome. Uh, Market Gnome is one that I, it, the bots really like taking Market Gnomes. Like if you just leave your computer and uh, your AFK, like Market Gnomes, the bots have no problem auto-picking Market Gnome. Um, but, but people don't really care for the Market Gnome unless they're specifically in a craft kind of go-long space. And Orsov is that. If you are picking up like the clay-fired bricks and the saw blades and, you know, the, White has some really good mid to late game craft cards and Market Gnome works particularly well with that. And if it, it, I think it also does, like, if you're doing the sacrifice thing, sacrificing a Market Gnome is okay, too, because you gain a life and draw a card. So it's a pretty good target for like, things like Fanatical Offering. And then we've got Tinker's Totes, which is three cards in one. And uh, just like any any of the archetypes that care about, like, the crafting, being able to sacrifice this and craft it from your graveyard, uh, it works really well with the other white craft cards. And then... Uh, it gives you uh, a bunch of fodder for the sacrifice stuff and chumping on the ground while you win in the air. And then we've got Deathcat Marionette, which, uh, like I mentioned, it trades really well as a 1-1 Death Toucher. And unless you have the Chupacabra Echo um, or the next card we're going to talk about, there's, you can just play it and not self-mill if you don't have a whole lot of those payoffs or if, or if you've already used those payoffs. But a 1-1 Death Touch trades well um, one for one. And... Like I mentioned, that's what we want to be doing. And Defossilize is one, anytime that you're running, because of another chance and Deathcat Marionette, both self-mill and are in black, Defossilize package is self-contained. And so anytime that you're running Defossilize, or anytime that you're in black, you can be running Defossilize. And uh, I don't think it works particularly well in this archetype, especially like compared to Golgari, where you have a whole bunch of green beef that you're looking to reanimate. Um, but this, if you do pick up a defossilize and you have it, then, you know, you want to take the land cycling dinosaurs a little bit more highly. Um, you then you can use like another chance in the marionette to self mill to find those targets. And, um, and then lastly, we've got Vanguard of the Rose, which, um, works pretty well with the totes and the, um, synapse necromage. The more fodder that you have that you can kind of throw into this to fuel it, uh, the better. And the, you, but like I said, you want to be really careful about the uh, price that you're paying with your rectangles and Vanguard of the Rose is one that like uh, can quickly chew through all of your resources that you could have better used somewhere else. But if you're tapping one to sacrifice one, one to trade with a three, three, that's worth it. Right. And then uh, we've got the value of a replacement for picks eight and onward. And this is this is a long list, and that's why I was saying there's no way that I'm going to get this done in 30 minutes. Um, but we're going to go we're going to go quickly here. So um, the reason why this list is so long is that like so when when an archetype's win rate is much lower, then you end up with more stuff that um, 
is on that list, right? Like if, if your if your average archetype win rate is 60%, then your list is going to be really small and there's going to be very few cards that actually wheel, right? Uh, whereas Orsov is, is, there's some cards that are dramatically underrated, right? Or uh, underdrafted. So like Fanatical Offering is very common to see on the wheel. Uh, is it an amazing card that's going to win you the game when you play it? Not necessarily, but if you, you know, are making sure that it's in your theme, which uh, it fits Orsov very well, uh, is, is the top common I'm looking to wheel in the archetype uh, because it's giving me that card advantage and I have the the sacrifice fodder to, f to, to fuel it. Uh, similarly, like Mephetic Draft is a card that is unplayable in every other black archetype. It is for Orsov and Orsov alone um, because you have the ability to sacrifice it to get the draw a card and losing one life um, reward for it. Uh, another chance is one that like if you're in black, you're going to try to wheel another chances. So this one's one that like if you're if there's another black drafter at the table, you're going to have to compete against it a little bit more. Uh, it, it, being able to mill two cards and then return two cards from your graveyard to your hand is uh, very intriguing for Golgari and for Demir, a little bit less so for Rakdos and for Orsov. So you can kind of take it or leave it. I decided to not include it in my draft skeleton, but there are times that I, I will take the another chance because they work particularly well with the Skullcap Snails. And then we've got Hidden Necropolis and Hidden Courtyard, which are the black and white caves. Um, the cave space works pretty well because it, it's a built-in sacrifice. So if you have Veto, you can sacrifice a cave and gain two life. And uh, it's also just like if you're doing a really controlling attrition-y space, then um, getting additional value out of your lands is something that you can definitely do in this archetype. Uh, similarly, Primordial Gnar is something that I look to play in Orsov that I don't look to play in other archetypes because it works particularly well on defense. It does not attack very well because it trades with the 2-2, but on defense it trades with something with 5 toughness. And then it is also doing the... Um, it replaces itself with a Discover 3, which works well with the fact that the majority of the stuff in my deck is already like Discover 1, Discover 2, Discover 3, right? So like uh, this dying into a marionette is just really good defensively. And then we've got the Soaring Sandwing. Um, I don't actively look to pick these up unless I have like a Defossilize, um, but it's always an intro, you know, it's an, it's another flyer. And as, as if, you're, if we're short on playables, Trying to wheel a Soaring Sandwing is definitely one way to do it. Deconstruction Hammer is another card that you can pick up on the wheel. Um, it Being able to give one of your flyers plus one, plus one, and then destroy target artifact or enchantment. It's a very expensive uh, effect to sacrifice your hammer and pay four to destroy an artifact or enchantment. So you really want to save these for destroying the key, like, um, really important artifacts. Like a uh, inverted iceberg, right? Like you don't want to do this just to destroy anything. So think about it. How much are you, how much are you paying? What cost are you paying? What's the hidden cost of getting rid of your plus one plus one on your flyer over the course of the game? Uh, Ray of Ruin is. Um, like I said, uh, Orsov is interested in getting as much removal as possible. It plays, I think, a lot like Rakdos does in a lot of other sets uh, where I just try to prioritize removal over everything else and then see what <laughs> what I have left over. And uh, so Ray Ruin is one that you can uh, try to pick up very late on the wheel. Uh, you've got a five cost exile target creature vehicle or non-basic land, scry one. Something to keep in mind is that control in general likes cheaper removal because then you can two spell. You can remove your opponent's threat and then also develop the board. 
whereas uh, five cost removal is kind of all you're doing for the turn. So you want to be kind of selective with how many Ray of Ruins you have in your deck. But if you're trying to, you know, get to that magic number eight, what this is definitely one of those cards that you can take advantage of. And then the Hoverstone Pilgrim is if you're if you're leaning more heavily into the descend space um, and doing the marionettes and the another chances, uh, you can you can chew through your deck pretty quickly and then rebuild it with the Hoverstone Pilgrim. So not every deck is going to want a Hoverstone Pilgrim, but there are some Anytime that you're in black, like with that self mill, there there's an opportunity there to be um, to play the Hoverstone Pilgrim. And if you are leaning very heavily into removal and trying to make the game go super long, then the Hoverstone Pilgrim fits into that space pretty well. So you, you need you need a couple of things to make this card work. But if you've got those things, then it, it performs quite well. And then Might of the Ancestors is another one that the more white flyers that you have, the more Might of the Ancestors becomes appealing. And uh, but also the longer that the game is going, the more appealing it is because you have to take a turn off. Uh, if you play if you play this on like turn three, you're gonna lose. <laughs> I mean, maybe not guaranteed. Um, but you you would rather be developing the board and putting rectangles that can block and interact early on, and then later. When you've got like six mana, you know, like putting out a Might of the Ancestors later in the game that makes your uh, flyers more efficient um, is good. So I think that the, the more removal that you have to kind of back this up and slow the, pa the pace down of the game, then the more you can afford to take a turn off uh, or to spend the three mana to get the enchantment down. And uh, Sunbird Standard uh, works um, in this archetype just, just for finding more uh, flyers. And it's not a space that splashes particularly well, right? Remember, if we look back at the winds destroyed, um, the the off color splashes uh, negatively affect the archetype. But the uh, white flyers is what you're trying to do. So if you're a little bit short on, you know, picking up seven of the miners' guide wings and cloud guards and rune lurker bats and whatnot or whatever, uh, you know, then you can lean into the sunbird effigy as kind of a backup plan. Uh, though I do, I don't think that you should be leaning heavily into the Sunbird thing uh, as far as like other colors go. But there is an exception, and the exception is, is if you're doing the cave thing. So um, Hidden Cataract and Hidden Volcano, uh, blue for the Benthosaur and red for the uh, Calamitous Caven. Uh, there is always a multicolored cave space. And um, especially with the descend mechanics coming from Deathcap Marionette and Another Chance, they black works particularly well with the descend space and caves in general. So um, I'm not surprised to see the blue and the red uh, caves specifically make it onto the list. And then we've got the rampaging spike tail, which um, similar to the Sandwing, is something that you can look to reanimate off of Defossilize, but I would rather be doing the Sandwing because it fits the flying thing and it fits the go long gain because because it gains you life when it enters the battlefield. And then we've got Promising Vein and Hidden Volcano and uh, Captivating Cave, which all go into that uh, cave space. So if you if you draft like nine plus caves, you can pick up the bat colonies um, in white. If if you've got nine plus caves, you can pick up the uh, red Calamitous Caven. If you've got like six or so caves, if you've got a little bit less, you can pick up like the Benthosaurs. They don't need as many. Um, but yeah, you, you, the the last little bit is just like Keep keep your mind uh, keep 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 your mind open to the cave space, uh, 
anytime that you are are in black, white, red, <laughs> sometimes green, right? There's a five color cave space. Whew. All right. So next week I'll be covering another archetype. Uh, we have three left before the murders at Karlov Manor, uh, which comes in early February, and I'll be doing uh, like for every main set, I will be doing a uh, a uh, tier list and review, uh, set review, followed by kind of like what are the base mechanics and uh, and then. Before pre-release, I'll be trying to get my draft skeletons out of just kind of like, this is what I think the archetype is trying to do, and I think these are the commons and uncommons that fit that kind of theme. So look for that coming down the road in February. And um, remember to hit like and subscribe for more nearly uh, <laughs> near-daily Magic the Gathering content, and uh, place your vote on YouTube for the next archetype. And uh, happy holidays, everybody. Thank you for listening to my ramblings. And uh, thank you so much for being a part of this community. Uh, this year has been fantastic. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to what next week or next year has in store. So good luck with your games and future trophies. Thank you all for the support. And I will see you next week.